Let's pray together this morning. Father, God, we give you honor. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you together as your body. We praise you for your goodness, for the beauty of your gospel, for the truth of your word, and for the power that is found in the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds today. Through your word, Father, we give you glory and honor, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Welcome this morning to Covenant Church. My name's Weston. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and just real quick, in case any of y'all are wondering who that big red-headed guy is leading worship, uh, that's Joe, and uh, Joe and his wife Haley uh, have been good friends of uh, myself and, and Lindsay's for the last few years, um, and uh, they became believers about a year ago, and so it's been really awesome to kind of walk with them and uh, in a discipleship relationship, and uh, Joey and Haley have actually been uh, helping with a church plant on the Air Force Base uh, over the last year or so, and he's been leading worship over there, and everybody's kind of gotten deployed, and so... So they are here now with us at Covenant Church, and it's awesome to have them. We really appreciate them being here and uh, leading with us. So welcome this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writing here, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through, the, through him. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, this week I came across an article from the woodlands outside of Houston that said that a pastor at First Baptist Church of the Woodlands had been arrested for soliciting a prostitute. Um, unfortunately for him, it was actually an undercover police officer uh, that he solicited, which I'm, I'm sure was a bummer. And believe it or not, he, he has now, you know, obviously been like, he's resigned from, from his church, he's been kicked out. Everybody's shocked, right? Everybody's shocked about what, what's happened. And I, I was reading this article and I, and I was thinking, you know, I feel like I hear stories like this really often. Stories about uh, maybe pastors who have done something wrong. And so I just googled the words pastor and arrested. And top three uh, headlines that came up. Uh, white pastor arrested for lying to police about being robbed and shot by interracial couple. Total fabrication. Somehow this guy had been shot. I don't know how. But he called the police and told them that this couple had, had robbed him and shot him. So that's interesting. Alabama pastor and wife arrested after bringing infant to bar, charged with being drunk. So that's fun. Uh, Arkansas pastor arrested after allegedly robbing local Walmart. So as you can imagine, um, these are not funny, but kind of funny at the same time. I mean, these... uh, These are just a few examples of the pages and pages and pages and pages of results that came up when I googled that. Certainly within the Catholic Church, books have been written and movies have been made about not only just sinful behavior, but also just criminal activity among the clergy within the church. And I've seen some of this stuff firsthand over the years, and chances are you have too, Um, Not only with pastors, but with other seemingly good Christian people. People you go to church with who suddenly get found out in their sin. I've had church members arrested. I've had church members caught in prostitution stings. I've had church members caught in adultery. uh, And worse, chances are you've seen some of this stuff, you've experienced it, you've been around it, or you know of something like this happening. And the reason why we all know people who have been caught in sin is because, wait for it, we are all sinful. We are all people who have sin in our lives. Every single one of us. There is no one in this room who is removed from sin. There is no one in this room who is sinless. You sin, I sin, we all sin. And while it's certainly sad to see people whose lives get upended because of sin, what perhaps amazes me the most is how shocked we are when other people sin, aren't we? We're just so shocked. And the sentiment that you often hear in some of these situations is, I feel like I don't even know that person. And the reason why is because you don't. 
you don't know this person. And I think the reason why you don't know them is because American church culture actually conditions us to act as if we don't have sin. Y'all follow me? I think our church culture actually conditions us to pretend in front of everyone else that we don't have sin in our lives and that we are all inherently good people rather than what Scripture tells us, which is we are all inherently evil people. Everyone in this room has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There are none who are righteous, not even one. We are conditioned to not tell other believers when we're struggling. We've been conditioned to believe that our particular sin is weird and different and that no one else would understand it. We have seen people ostracized from their church community and from their friendships because of sin. And so when we see that, when we experience it, we put up the facade so that we aren't in some way affected by our own sin. And ultimately, we come to this place where maybe we actually believe that we are inherently good people. And we look around the room and we think, hey, when we all come together, man, this is a room full of good people. It's a room full of people who are never going to do the wrong thing. A room full of people who are never going to mess up. We actually kind of live, I think, in that delusion that that's true. The question we need to ask is, what is it? about our church culture, and I include, I don't think our church is different in this. I think we're a part of this. What is it in our church culture that makes us think that we can't be honest about our sin? What makes us think that we can't be honest about the very thing that is perhaps most common to each of us? The very thing that connects us, that we can each identify with. Why can't we be real? And even more so, what do we do about our sin? What do we do about it? How do we deal with it? Because here's the thing. Scripture doesn't indicate to us that at any point in this earthly life that we will achieve sinlessness. That we will ever come to a place where this is no longer a factor for us. What Scripture does indicate to us is that if we are in Christ that we will be conformed to his image and progressively we will become less sinful. Not sinless, but less sinful. One of my favorite passages about this is 2 Corinthians three sixteen through 18. It says this, But when one turns to the Lord, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed Now, the the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's break that down real quick. 
In verse 16, when Paul mentions the veil, what he's alluding to is something that happens with Moses back in the book of Exodus. You guys may recall Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He encounters the presence of the Lord. He comes down off the mountain, and he is literally glowing because he has been in the presence of the Lord. And this freaks everyone else out, right? He comes down, he's like shining, Scripture says. And so Moses puts this veil over his face. And so everyone, it's this amazing image to me when you really think about it. Moses comes down and people can literally see the presence of God on Moses. They can literally see the effect that being with God has had on him. And they're bothered by it, right? And so Moses puts a veil over his face. He literally shields the glory of the Lord from the rest of the people. And so Paul takes this image and he applies it to his purposes here. He uses it to describe those who don't see God, those who don't get it, those who don't have ears to hear and eyes to see. He says that the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, it's, it's like they have a veil over their heart. And when the veil is lifted, when we see Jesus for who he really is, when we turn to him, everything changes. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the Spirit of the Lord is present in your life, God's Holy Spirit indwelling living within you, if the Spirit of the Lord is present in your life, there is freedom in that you have been saved from sin. Eternally, you have been reconciled to God. You have been granted entrance into his kingdom. You have been adopted into his family. Man, there is complete and total freedom in that Jesus' life, Jesus' perfection, has now been imparted to you through his death and resurrection. So there's freedom in this eternal sense. But notice that the Spirit is key there. The Spirit is key to freedom in our lives in an earthly sense because it is the Spirit, not your willpower, that is the key to moving past sin. And some of you have experienced this. You try and you try and you try and you try and just trying not to sin does not mean that you don't sin, right? Even things that you don't like, even things that you feel guilty about. You can feel extreme guilt, extreme remorse for your sin, and turn around the next day and do it again. So it's not just about your own action. It's not just about your own willpower. It's not just about your own strength. There's also something else at work here, and that something else is the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is not present in your life, if the Spirit of God is not dwelling within you, then there will not be freedom. There will not be steps taken past sin. There will not be this process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus in your life, because it is the Spirit of God that works within you. And so what this passage is saying is that when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, beholding the glory of the Lord, like Moses, through the Spirit, we are transformed into that same image of Jesus progressively from one degree of glory to the other. Over time, by keeping our focus on Jesus through the Spirit, God transforms us. So here's the deal. 
It's not just about your willpower, but you play a critical role in this work because you have to keep your eyes focused. You have to keep your eyes focused. But none of this is possible without the Spirit. So, so to borrow another story from the life of Moses, there's this occasion where the Israelites go out and they're fighting another group of people called the Amalekites. And Moses goes on top of a hill and he can see the whole battle taking place. And what Moses learns is that if he raises his hands, the Israelites begin to prevail in battle. But if he lowers his hands, suddenly they become, uh, they get into a situation where they're being defeated. So if the Israelites are actually going to prevail in this battle, Moses has to stand on the top of the hill with his hands raised. Now, now here's the thing. Does God need Moses to stand there with his hands raised in order to empower the Israelites to defeat the Amalekites? Well, of course not. God's perfectly capable of doing that on his own. He wants to include us in the pursuit of his will. I'll give you another story from the Old Testament. Uh, The battle of Jericho, right? Do you remember what happens there? Joshua, there's a little song about it. God wants them to march around the city over and over and over and over and over again, right? And then he, at the very end, after they've marched around the city multiple times, they're all going to blow their trumpets, and the walls of the city are going to fall down. Now, hopefully, you realize it's not the trumpets that make the walls of the city of Jericho fall down. What is it? What's the power of God at work, right? But he wants his people to be actively engaged in the pursuit of his will. Well, nothing is different for you in your life, in your battle against sin, right? As you pursue God's will, as you keep your face focused on his face, right? As you keep your life focused on the person of Jesus, God does not desire for us to be passive in this regard. He wants us to want what he wants. And that's especially true when it comes to what is going on within you. If you've ever thought, Lord, I wish you would just take this thing away from me right? Lord, I I just want to sit back and do nothing and kind of magically wake up one day and this sin that was once a a great temptation for me now no longer is a thing in my life. God, I just want you to take it away. I don't really see a biblical example for that kind of thing happening because God desires for us to also actively be pursuing the same thing. Y'all following me this morning? If you want the easy path, if you want things to magically disappear without you actually going after it or desiring it or pursuing it, I don't think it's going to happen. If we don't want Jesus enough to pursue him on our own, then nothing will change. Let's go back to our primary text, Colossians 3. Uh, In the chapter prior to this, Colossians 2, Paul is teaching the church that they shouldn't let anybody else tell them that they aren't true Christians because they don't do certain things, right? So Paul says, don't let anybody talk down to you because you don't maybe practice some of the Jewish rituals. Uh, Don't let anybody talk down to you, he says, because you don't worship angels, 
or because you don't practice asceticism. So what he's talking about here is some of the false gospels that were already becoming prevalent not long after Jesus. Uh, false gospels are anything that says, yes, Jesus, oh, but also this. Okay? So, so for Paul, he's saying, don't let anybody tell you that you're not a true follower of Jesus because you don't participate in this particular Jewish festival. Or don't let somebody tell you, hey, but you've also got to worship angels if you really want to be a Christian. Paul says that's not a real gospel. Don't let anybody speak down to you. And so the theme in chapter 2 is don't let other people disqualify you. I think when we get to chapter 3, a theme could be don't disqualify yourself by just living in sin. And so he says in uh, the beginning, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Notice there's a conditional statement here, if If you have been raised with Christ, if that hasn't happened, then you don't have the Spirit of God living within you, which means that seeking the things that are above will not be within the realm of possibility for you, because it is the Spirit that empowers us to seek the things of God. If you have been raised with Christ, It's only through the Spirit that we have that ability, but we also have to pursue it. We have to seek it. And then in line with that, verses 2 and 3, set your minds, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Listen to this, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he's placing the onus on you to actually set your mental state, to set your mind, to set your lens, to set your worldview on Christ, on things that are above, on things that are heavenly and holy. But look at verse 3. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Man, how many of us live as if we have died? How many of us live as if there have, has been this like, unbelievable transformation that has taken place? I used to be this, and then I died, and now my life is hidden in Christ. Now I live because Christ lives. No longer this, now this. I mean, this is a common theme over and over again throughout the New Testament. But I wonder, man, how often do I live... As if it's not me anymore, but it's actually Jesus now that lives within me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live it. It's great. I mean, Paul talks about this over and over and over again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Listen, this is, this is fascinating. That one, Jesus, one has died For all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus has died, and if his life is imparted to us, if it's laid on to us, then we have died And we have risen in Christ. We are hidden in him. Paul goes on to say in that text that anyone who is in Christ 
is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And when he says in Christ, in Christ, he doesn't mean in the Jesus club, right? He doesn't mean those who go to church. He means those who have followed Jesus in faith and have given him everything. I give you my whole life to the extent that I am now dead and I'm a new creation alive in you. So living as if we have died means living for Christ and to Christ. And again, we have to pursue this. When Christ, verse 4, who is, in Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life, he is your life now, when he appears, when he returns, that's when you're really going to meet yourself, is what Paul says here. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Man, isn't that a fascinating statement? You have died, but now you're alive. But later one day when Jesus returns and we see him in his full glory, it is only then that you will truly see yourself. What does that mean? We'll come back to that in a second. If you're in Christ, you only see a glimpse, I think, of your true self in this life, right? Because we're doing battle against sin, battle against light and darkness. So if we have died in Christ in this life, we see a glimpse, we, we see a piece of what is to come. But one day, when Jesus returns, when we're glorified, then we will see our true self. So do we just sit back and do nothing? And just wait for that one day? No. Let's read on. Verse 5. So here's what you do, Paul says, in the meantime. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Right? If, if your earthly self has died, and you have now taken on the life of Christ, put to death anything within you that is earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of all of these things, the wrath of God is coming. This is not an exhaustive list, I'll add, right? Paul's just speaking of general sin here. He's saying, put away anything that is not of God in your life, not just this little list of things. It is because of sin that God's wrath is ultimately coming. In these, you too once walked... You were living in them. You were wallowing in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We're not even going to do that anymore, he says. And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. It's this progressive forward motion. And he says, within this, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but there is only Christ. So it doesn't matter who you are, or what your ethnicity is, or what maybe your former religious system was. Paul says, no, 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 within the body of Christ, there is only Jesus. It is him. It is his body. You are a member of the body of Christ. I don't care who you are or where you're from. So there aren't distinctions, right? There shouldn't be racism here. 
right? There shouldn't be a, a condescension. There shouldn't be people who think I'm better than you in some way. We are all in need of a Savior. We all have no hope without Him. So why in the world would we ever think that we are somehow superior to another person? Why would we be shocked that another person sins when we sin every day? Why does that baffle us? So we are to actively work to put sin to death, to move past the things that are actually just echoes of our former self. And the picture that Paul paints is that we are to be actively trying to like take on Take off the old clothes that we were wearing while simultaneously putting on new clothes. It's, it, uh, just picture this. He's calling us to take off old clothes while at the same time putting on new clothes. And again, this isn't something you can do outside the power of the Spirit. It is a grace that you would even be able to pursue this. Or that you would even want to pursue this. This is all the grace of God. Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans chapter 8, but he really drives home the point that this is the work of the Spirit. He says, Romans 8, 12 and 14, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, not to the former self, to live according to it, right? We don't owe that life anything. We don't owe that sin anything. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There's no other end when it comes to the flesh than death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. So the Spirit empowers us to shrug off the old clothing, to put on the new clothing of Christ, and this is the progressive work of sanctification. So the image here is that for the duration of our lives in this earthly body, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are following Jesus, who are led by the Spirit, we are in the constant process of trying to take off the old clothes while simultaneously trying to put on the new clothes of Christ. So the presence of the old clothing is always there. But also the presence of the new clothing should become evident in our lives. The fruit of the new clothing, things like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and so on. The idea of sanctification is that we would actually look different from day to day, from year to year, as we move forward in this process of taking off the old and putting on the new. Paul at one point calls this clothing the armor of God. And he says we need this clothing if we're actually going to do battle against sin in our lives. He talks about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and shoes that are the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Paul says this is what we are pursuing, not just passively claiming Jesus, but actively seeking to become more like Jesus in our everyday lives, putting away the old, taking on the new, and doing battle against things that are earthly. 
But here, guys, here's what I think some of us have tried to do. And and to some extent, this is what I believe our church culture can breed. Some of us have tried to put on the new clothes without even attempting to take off the old clothes. Some of us have, have literally tried to put on Jesus over our sin, over our former self, with no desire whatsoever to be done with the former self. And the whole thing, as you can imagine, is just a mess. This is what we're seeing, I think, in some of the instances we were mentioning earlier. Everyone eventually notices that you're wearing two sets of clothes, one on top of the other. Everybody eventually notices that something is wrong. And they think, I don't know that person because you don't know that person. You're seeing what they want you to see. And I think that this happens because our church culture encourages people to attempt to put on the new clothes without even attempting to take off the old clothes. And so, so I just want to share a few thoughts, a few things for us to consider this morning that I believe sh- should shape our church culture and church culture in general, but our church culture in relationship to some of these issues. And, and so the first thing I would say is this. I think our church should have a culture where honesty is celebrated. I think our church should have a culture where honesty is celebrated. And, and by the way, the, I don't, these aren't like institutional guidelines for us. That's, I'm not saying that we should have this like on our website that people can go look at and see what we're about. I, I'm saying that these are things that we should practice to each other, right? Th- this is the way we should relate to each other. And so you could call this a culture of confession, A culture where honesty goes both ways, where I feel safe to tell other people within the body who are also pursuing Christ about the sin in my life, but a a culture of honesty where we also call out what we see in your life, and that we do that not as somebody who is superior and inferior, but as a group of people who are in unity together pursuing Jesus, right? You could call that accountability if you want to. But all it is is coming together and being honest and recognizing that we all sin. I'm going to mess up. You're going to mess up. You shouldn't be shocked when I mess up. I shouldn't be shocked when you mess up. Because we still have sin. Some of us may be farther down the road of putting on the new clothes and taking off the old clothes than others. But if this is going to be a body of Jesus, if this is going to be a normal church community, we're going to have people who are at all different levels of that process and some who haven't even stepped into that process yet. We have some who have tried to put on the new without even attempting to take off the old. We have people who don't even believe in Jesus, even though they attend church or they go to a small group. We have to have a culture where honesty is celebrated. 1 John 1, 5 through 10 says this, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk, walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's like taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what that really means, I believe. It's not just about using God's name as a swear word. Taking the Lord's name in vain is when we say, I'm with him, but there is no truth whatsoever in our lives. 
We are co-opting his name. We are using it in vain. We are using his name for our purposes. But we have no intention of changing, and we have no intention of pursuing him. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John's saying if you believe the gospel and you say you have no sin, then the truth of the gospel is not in you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Man, like he gets right to the point, doesn't he? Right? If we say we have no sin or if we project that we have no sin or if we try to live this facade that says I don't mess up, I don't do anything wrong, we are living a lie. Not only that, even worse, we're saying the gospel is a lie. Because we're saying there was really no need for Jesus to die and rise from the dead for our sin because we don't have sin. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus says it's so difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because when we have the means and the ability to live comfortably, when we have the means to pretty much have anything we want or need, then what need do we have of Jesus? If you also simultaneously believe that you're a pretty good person, then what need do you have of Jesus? We have to change our thinking. We have to change our gaze, our focus, off of ourselves and onto him. And it is when we do that, when we really see Jesus for who he is, we really see ourselves for who we are. Second culture is a culture of true discipleship. So if we have a culture of honesty, where we're being real about our pursuit of Jesus, or maybe even our lack of pursuit of Jesus, then we also have to have a culture of true discipleship. We cannot pursue Jesus in a vacuum. You can't pursue Jesus by yourself. This is why he has created the church. We need someone else to hold up our arms. You remember that story with Moses? Moses couldn't keep his arms up. And his arms kept falling, and the Israelites would start losing the battle. And so two other guys had to literally come alongside him to hold his arms up so that they could win. Man, what a beautiful picture of what the church is intended to be for us. We desperately need each other to hold our arms up if we have any hope of putting on these new clothes. Because here's what's interesting. As you mature in your faith, right, as you pursue Jesus, what Scripture doesn't tell us is that temptation will decrease. No, temptation continues, right? The things that tempt you today are more than likely still going to tempt you 15, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Those things don't just magically vanish. We live in a world of sin, and we live in a world of sinful people. So temptation will continue to be a part of your life. The question is, where is your focus? What is your intention? What are you working towards? What is your mindset on? And so we have to do this together. And there have to be people within the body who are farther along in this process, more mature, who can step up and say, hey, I'm not perfect, but come follow me. 
because I, I, I've been some of the places where you are right now. Let me speak into that. Let me come alongside you. This is the model of Jesus. Come follow me, right? Don't just know more about me. Actively pursue me. Actively follow me. And then finally, a culture of patience and grace. You could also call this a culture of forgiveness. If we only want people here who don't have obvious sin in their lives, then we don't want the church. If we don't want to have grace and forgiveness for people in our body who mess up, then we don't want the church. And also, if we won't be patient, gracious, and forgiving with others, then it is no wonder that it is our expectation that other people won't treat us with grace, patience, and forgiveness, right? So we don't want to let people in on our sin because we know what we would do if someone else sins. It's a vicious cycle, isn't it? So we have to bear with one another in this process. And it is messy and it is hard. If you find a church that isn't messy, then I I would question, is this really the church? Because sin is going to creep in. The enemy is going to try to get a foothold. There are people who are going to take steps forward and steps back. There are people who are going to disappoint us. You are going to disappoint yourself. We need each other and we have to bear with one another in this process. Being humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so as we wrap this up today, how do we live as to Christ instead of our former self? So let's finish our text in Colossians And let's take this as Jesus' charge to us as we leave this place today because we've talked about taking off the old. This is the putting on of the new. Beginning in verse 12. Then put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or indeed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I really believe that one of the things that Paul is saying here is that our common experience of sin should produce this incredible state of unity within the body. Isn't that incredible? 
our common experience of sin should produce this incredible state of unity. And it should lead us all to a place where, of course, we're humble because we are sinful. Of course, we want to bear with one another because we need other people to bear with us, right? If we have any hope here. And we look at our world, we look at our country, we look at the church in our country, we see 40 million different denominations. You know people in your life who messed up and are now ostracized from the church, who feel like, I can't go back there. In some of the stories I mentioned earlier, that's exactly what's happened. Man, I, I, I feel for these guys who are leading churches and who, who believe that they've got to put on this facade of I am perfectly spiritual in all ways, I'm good at everything, I don't mess up, I'm way down this road of maturity which says nothing, wrong's gonna go, nothing uh, is going to go wrong in my life. And now, because these guys have been found out, guess what the church is saying? Get out of here. We don't want you here. Man, if they can't be in the church, then I can't be in the church, and you can't be in the church, and we should all just go home. Because we all need each other in this. And what a beautiful picture for our world to look in and see, man, they really do love each other because they really know each other. And they still love love each other anyway. For me to really know you and for you to really know me and we still love each other? Man, that's the Spirit of God. That is grace. And so let me pray for us today that our focus would remain on Jesus, that we would pursue shrugging off the old self and taking on the new, that we would desire unity and honesty, that we would desire for the peace of Christ to reign as we all pursue him together. Let us pray together to that end. Father, God, for whatever reason, you have had my heart focused on this issue for a few weeks now, and you feel like you've been leading me to places in Scripture that illuminate this issue. God, we are so hesitant in today's world to talk about sin. I think we like to assign degrees of severity to sin so, so that our sin maybe seems less heinous when other people's sin seems more heinous. God, I, I feel as if you don't see those same degrees of severity. Father, you put honoring our parents on the same list as do not murder So God, may we look at all sin as being an affront to you. May we recognize our complicity in it. But may we not wallow in guilt. Instead, God, may we live in the joy and the hope of salvation as found in Christ. And God, may that joy, that sense of awe that we have, with what you have done for us, God, may it propel us to put sin to death, empowered by your spirit. May it propel us into our church body, God, where we want to bear with one another, where we want to be honest with one another, God, where we want to hold each other's arms up. And all the more when we are failing. And all the more when we are struggling. 
May we not be a people who ostracize others. May we have compassionate and humble hearts because we recognize who we are. A people who have no hope outside of you. A people who are perfectly deserving of death. But may we be encouraged by the fact that you have died our death. Because of your great love. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for what you have done for us through Christ. In your name, amen. So let us come to the table this morning, both sides. um, Take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and in doing so, remember that this is your life you are eating. Right? This is your life that you are eating. Not the old life, not the old self but the new life that is found in Jesus. The life that he died for. I would encourage you to just spend a few moments with him in prayer, confessing, thanking him, asking him to show you your own sin, the true state of your heart. Ask him to lead you as you seek to put sin to death in your life. Ask him to show you the people in our church community who you can be honest with. The people who will hold your arms up. The people who will walk with you in your sin. And then come this morning as he leads you.
Beautiful name.